0: Welcome to The Voyages and Travels of the Ambassadors, the epic story of a 17th century trade expedition from Germany to Persia that failed so completely its leader was publicly executed upon his return. This is Episode 9, How Many Miles to Babylon. How many miles to Babylon? Three score miles and ten. Can I get there by candlelight? Yes, and back again. If your heels are nimble and light you may get there by candlelight. Songs for the Nursery, 1805. We are now in Book 5 of the Scientific Travelogue by Adam Alarius, and the Holstein Embassy has just made landfall in Persia by intentionally running their ship aground. He begins this book with some history of the country, which I shall expand upon later. For my retelling, I find it better to start this episode with the activities of the shipwrecked ambassadors. The date is November 15, 1636, and the wrecked Friedrich has deposited them in a very pleasant country, green and filled with birds who sing until the middle of December. The soil there is very good, bringing forth rice, wheat, and barley in great abundance, he writes. They make no hay because their cattle are out winter and summer but if they make any, it is only for the convenience of travelers. The village of Nisaveh only has 15 or 16 poor houses, built of clay and absolutely square, with turf roofs you can walk on. In summer, the Persians erect tents up there so they can enjoy the cool air. Here it was that I first understood what the gospel says of the paralytic man who was let down through the roof of the house, writes Hilarius, referring to the story told in Luke 5.18, for this is their way of building all over the East. The Persians give up their homes for the Germans for a few days until enough tents can be pitched, not on top of the houses, for the entire group. You will remember from the last episode that the Friedrich was carrying a hundred pieces of hung beef, 500 gallons of beer, 120 gallons each of mead, French wine, and vinegar, two sheep, four great cakes of gingerbread, and other bread. Since all those supplies were lost with the ship, they are forced for the moment to subsist on moldy scraps of food and water from a small stream near the village. They use the ship for firewood. The hunting is good with plenty of wild birds, rabbits, and a fox-like animal called a chacal about the same size as a European fox, but instead of fur or hair, they are covered with wool and have white bellies, black ears, and smaller tails. A Sanskrit-English dictionary from the early 1800s defines shakal as fox, while modern dictionaries use the word jackal. I could find no references to woolly jackals with black ears, so I assume our ambassadors saw what we call the golden or common jackal which is native to southeastern Europe, North and East Africa, and South Asia. In the wet season of December to January, its coarse fur is a brown, grizzled yellow. On November 19, the governor of Durban, who had also provided the supplies noted earlier, sends messengers with more supplies. The letter to the Germans lists one horse, two oxen, twelve sheep, twenty pullets, three great pitchers of wine, one great pitcher of water, two panniers of apples, and three sacks of wheat flour. A pullet is a young female chicken, a pannier is a large wicker basket, and an internet search for great pitcher turns up baseball, beer, and carnivorous plants. The phrase was also used in many an old book, including The Arabian Nights, without explanation. None of which helps us understand what volume of wine the governor delivers, but I imagine it was something like, an ancient Greek amphora, a vase for transporting olives, cereal, oil, and wine. The vessels could be anywhere from one foot to five feet tall, but an average measure of volume was about 10 gallons. So let us say that the Germans receive at least 30 gallons of wine and 10 of water. The single horse is a mistake by the governor, who assumes the Germans have only one ambassador and thus promises only one horse. The messengers, realizing there are two ambassadors, have purchased another on their way to Nisabe. When they arrive with the supplies, our two ambassadors meet with the messengers, and Brueggemann gets upset at the governor's misunderstanding about the horses. The Persians say they gladly corrected the error themselves, since it was surely the governor's intention to provide horses for both men. Nevertheless, Brueggemann refuses to accept his horse with the excuse that it is not as good as the one given to Ambassador Crucius. The Persians are offended and take it as a personal insult to the governor. Indeed, they resent the insult so much that, contrary to their customs about foreign dignitaries, they sent Bergamon and Crucius away from the meeting without the diplomatic gifts usually given on such occasions. Hilarius also tells us that the governor goes even further, doing the ambassadors all the ill that lay in his power. The first thing he does is to deny them enough horses and cattle to transport themselves and all their baggage. This causes a delay of more than a month as the Germans are forced to find additional means of transportation. On November 22, a messenger and Persian interpreter are sent to the governor of the province of Shirvan, 100 miles south, to acquaint him with our arrival, and to entreat him to supply us with all things necessary for the continuation of our journey. It takes a week for the Shervan guide to arrive, and when he does, the Germans fire off their cannons in welcome. Just prior to the shipwreck, the two ambassadors and an unstated amount of goods had been transferred to shore. Here we see that the cannons and gunpowder were among the cargo saved from the wreck. A couple weeks later, a Tatar prince whom they had met in Turkey comes for a visit. They exchange gifts, and the prince asks for some gunpowder. As Valerius puts it, he expressed that they would do him a great kindness to give him a little gunpowder to be revenged for the incursions Sultan Muhammad had made unto his territories. The ambassadors give him an 80-pound barrel of the stuff. At times like this, I miss our translator Samuel Baron. It is not clear to me who Alarious means by Sultan Mahomet, because Mahomet is just another, and now archaic, name for the Prophet Muhammad. Does the Tatar prince want revenge on the governor of Durban, who also carries the title of sultan? If so, then the gunpowder is probably retribution for the governor's ill will toward the Germans, which was caused by Brueggemann. And if so, it also amounts to dealing arms to the enemies of your Persian hosts, which would be nothing less, and likely more, than a serious diplomatic breach. The Shervan Guide says his master is eager to meet them and guarantees animals and provisions, but would first like to have some information about the quality and humors of the ambassadors, the number of people in the group, and also their manner of life. Here we get another indication of how Olarius feels about Brueggemann's poor behavior and its effect on the mission. He tells us that the joy of being in Persia after we had run through so many dangers was much abated by the inconveniences caused by the chiefest in the company, that chief person being Otto Brueggemann. But our author also says he is willing to spare the reader the dissatisfaction of further complaints and instead tells us how they overcome the current affliction. The weather is good, and on December 1, a little society of gentlemen find a place near Nisive so pleasant and inviting that the fairest meadows in Europe afford not anything so delightful in the best season of the year. A stream circles the meadow. Pomegranate trees invite them to rest ourselves under their shade and divert ourselves with the memory of our dear country. They all bring what food and drink they have and enjoy a picnic that lasts several days. On December 9, a messenger from Shirvan tells them to expect wagons, camels, and horses to arrive within two weeks. Three days later, some animals do arrive, but not enough to transport everyone in the embassy. The messenger explains that falling snow had hindered the camels, which are not able to go by reason of the slipperiness of the way. And besides that, he says, whole caravans have been known to perish in the mountains, where wood and shelter are scarce. The Germans are forced to stay put for another ten days, and Brueggemann decides to cut down some trees and make wooden carts for their cannons. The Persians tell him not to because they need the wood to build next year's ships. Brueggemann ignores the request and uses the trees anyway, telling those of our retinue who would have dissuaded him from it, that the only way to deal with the Persians is to domineer over them. The governor of Durban gets the last laugh when he provides the Germans with so few horses that they cannot use them to tow the cannons. And thus, Hilarious writes, we were forced to leave our carriages behind and to load our guns upon the camels. On December 21, messengers from Durban and Shirvan arrive with 40 camels, 30 wagons, drawn by wild oxen, and 80 horses. It is not enough for all the baggage, but they swear by the heads of their kings that they could not find any more. After the gentlemen load their belongings, the remaining 94 Germans are left with 60 horses, hence the reason the cannons are loaded on the camels. They depart Nicevet on December 22, 1636. While delayed in Nisive, Olarius continues his geographic investigations. He begins Book 5 by telling us which Persia he's talking about, and that's important because the country does not have the same borders that Iran has today. He also tells us that the most recent map of Persia, published in Paris, is no doubt the most exact of any that have yet come to light. But it is also not as accurate as the map he is making himself. From north to south, Persia covered the area from the Caspian Sea to the Persian Gulf, and from east to west, roughly from the city of Kandahar to what was once Babylon on the Euphrates River. Today, the old borders would include Iran, along with parts of Russia, Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. As an aside, the name Pakistan was coined in 1933 and first published as Pakistan an acronym made of letters taken from the Muslim homelands of Punjab, Afghania, Kashmir, Sindh, and Baluchistan. Although modern Iran comprises most of Old Persia, the two names come from different languages. The word Iran is derived from the Middle Persian Eran, which in turn stems from Ariana, the country of the Aryans. The word Persia comes from Pars, arabicized as Fars which was known to the Greeks as Persis. Today, the Persian language is known as Farsi. Looking at a map of Alexander the Great's empire, 336-323 BC, we see that Greater Persia was called Ariana, and the area between Western Ariana and the Caspian Sea was called Media. Herodotus knew the Medes as Aryans, a term which ancient Indo-Iranians used to identify themselves. Scholars say they used Aryan not as a racial identification, but for religious, cultural, and linguistic reasons. In contrast, they called nearby outsiders non-Aryans. As Mark Twain once said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. It is notable that modern leaders of Iran, whose ancestors were the first Aryans, are behaving remarkably like the Aryans of the Third Reich, by seeking a final solution to the Jewish problem. Valerius writes that the country where the Friedrich rex is called Muskur. Home to an ancient multi-ethnic tribal federation along the west-central coast of the Caspian Sea, the area was known as Muskur in antiquity, renamed Pavlovka on some unknown date, probably by the USSR, and since 1999 has again been known as the municipality of Muskur, this time in Azerbaijan. As our ambassadors pass through, the governor of the area controls about 200 villages. The larger region around Muskur is among the most contested pieces of real estate in world history. We previously discussed the Mongol invasions under the Golden Horde and Timur the Lame, but as consequential as they were, they were also just the tip of the iceberg. A comprehensive account of the wars in the region would require an encyclopedia-length podcast, which we are not doing here. But I will provide a short and surely disputed list of invading neighbors. We have to start somewhere, so we'll start with the Elamites, who are mentioned in the Bible and by Olarius, and established a community in the region around 7200 BC. The early Aryans, later called the Medes, arrived about 3000 BC. We're not sure what the Elamites called these Aryans, but they probably did hurl nasty adjectives at them and establish an anti-Aryan immigration policy. The progressive nations of the known world called the Aryans undocumented immigrants and demanded that they be transported to all major Aryan cities at government expense. The nomadic Achaemenids forced themselves onto the Aryans sometime around 1000 BC, and in 553 BC, Cyrus the Great fomented a revolution. Scholars believe the mostly peaceful Aryans fought back only with propaganda, calling the rebels settlers and colonizers, and demanding, Make Ariana Great Again. Unfortunately for the Aryans, or the Medes if you prefer, Cyrus went on to establish the Achaemenid Empire, Some refer to this as the first Persian empire. In 516 BC, Cyrus also defeated Croesus of Lydia, a Greek king known for his great wealth. Croesus, as the story goes, had asked the oracle of Delphi if he would defeat Cyrus in battle. The oracle replied that he would indeed destroy a mighty empire if he attacked the Persians. So Croesus attacked, was trounced by Cyrus, and taken prisoner, thus fulfilling the prophecy in a most unexpected way. For the next few hundred years, Persian settlers invaded Greece, Armenia, Babylon, Cyprus, the Indus Valley, Egypt, and even up the Danube River into Europe. At the time, it was the biggest empire the world had yet seen, some two million square miles, with colonies from Libya to India. Alexander the Great forcibly migrated into Persia in 334 BC, and the Achaemenid Empire fell four years later. You already know pretty much what Alexander did and where, so we will only mention what Olerius calls the Pile Caspiae, or the Caspian Gates, the famed mountain pass through which Persian king Darius fled with his army before being killed by one of his own men. The location of the gates has long been disputed, but they are somewhere in the Alborz range in northern Iran. The mountains stretch from the border of Azerbaijan along the western and southern coast of the Caspian Sea and then finally run northeast toward Turkmenistan. The best dissertation I could find on the subject is in John F. Standish's 1998 book Persia and the Gulf. Greek historians Strabo, Eratosthenes, and Pliny all had some idea where the gates are, Pliny was the most explicit, writing that the pass was 133 miles from the city of Hecatompolos, known today as the Iranian city of Kumis. Eight miles long, barely wide enough for a single line of wagon traffic, and infested with snakes, the pass had no fresh water within 28 miles. He also said that the rocks in the pass oozed liquid salt. Pietro della Valle, a Roman who traveled all over the Middle East and lived in Isfahan from December 1618 to October 1621, wrote that he traveled a narrow mountain pass from the village of Aradan, east of Tehran, to the Caspian Sea, and found a river that ran along a vein of salt. Sir Thomas Herbert, an English courtier and government official who was part of a diplomatic mission to Persia in 1628, also provided descriptions of a mountain pass remarkably similar to those of Pliny and Delavalle. Valle. Using these clues and others from more recent travelers, Standish concluded that the Caspian gates cannot be definitively located, but that the most likely route is through the Hablerud Valley from Aradan to Firouscu, through the Guduk Pass, and thence down the Tala River to the Caspian. After Alexander died, some of his generals fought each other, and one of them replaced the Achaemenid Empire with the Seleucid Empire in 312 BC. The Persians naturally wanted to make Persia great again, but they had to wait 500 years. Named after General Seleucus Nicator, the empire turned its back on Alexander's ambition of uniting east and west on terms of equality, alienated the loyalties of its Persian subjects, and thus created divisions that would prove fatal. Seleucus appointed only Macedonians and Greeks as his provincial governors, and not one Persian was admitted to the administration other than at low or menial levels. Not only that, but his Asiatic army had an entirely European officer corps. And so, when another group of militant and invading migrants arrived from Transoxiana, an ancient region of Turkestan in Central Asia, the citizens of the Seleucid Empire offered little resistance. For purposes of clarity, Transoxiana was located in today's Uzbekistan and parts of Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kazakhstan. It was the center of Timur the Lame's empire in the 15th century and a great center of the Muslim world during the Middle Ages. The Parthians from Transoxiana under King Mithridates I seized Media and Mesopotamia from the Seleucids in 247 BC. Claiming to be the heirs of the Achaemenid Empire, Parthia at its height stretched from the Euphrates River in modern-day Turkey to Afghanistan and Pakistan. You may have heard about the legendary elixir of Mithridates, a universal antidote for all known poisons that was created by Mithridates VI of Pontus. According to the legend, the king was quite reasonably worried about being assassinated and researched every toxin known at the time by experimenting on prisoners. His work paid off and even Pliny the Elder claimed that he had created and regularly ingested, a substance made from over 50 different ingredients, ground together into powder, mixed with honey, and formed into chewable tablets. It came to be known as mithridate. In 53 BC, Parthia handed the Roman Empire one of its worst ever defeats at the Battle of Cari, killing or capturing almost 90% of the soldiers under Marcus Crassus, who had been one of the heroes of the Spartacus Campaign. History records that Crassus had attempted to score a political victory over rivals Pompey and Caesar by invading Syria. After the battle, 20,000 Romans lay dead, 10,000 captured, and only 5,000 escaped the carnage. The Sassanians replaced the Parthians in 224 AD to become the last pre-Islamic Persian Empire, achieving what is considered to be the high watermark of Persian culture. A vassal of Parthian king Artabanus, one Artaxerxes, also called Ardashir, found himself in a position to influence a revolt by claiming, like the Parthians, to be an heir of the Achaemenids. Ardashir rebelled in 212 AD and a decade later became master of all Persia, proclaiming the Sassanid dynasty. It restored the traditional religion, Zoroastrianism, and succeeded in making Persia great again. As happens to all great empires and religions, a radical reformer named Mani invented a new version of Zoroastrianism and attracted followers of Manichaeism. The Sassanids responded by flaying the man alive in 276 AD, stuffing his skin with straw, and suspending the ghastly effigy over one of the gates of the city of Bishapur in southwestern Persia. And then came the Arab Muslim immigrants. The invasion was unlike any other in Persian history, and the total Islamic victory imposed a new, alien, and fundamentalist religion on the people, with greater consequences than even the Achaemenid conquest. The Muslims replaced the Sassanid Persians in 651 AD. The Persians tried to fight back by calling it a great replacement, but the only people who listened also called them Islamophobic. When Muhammad died in 632 AD, his followers launched an endless civil war over how to pick his successor. In the winter of 1636, as Olarius and our ambassadors begin the trek to the capital city of Isfahan, the Ottoman-Persian part of that war is still going full tilt. Begun in 1518, it doesn't end until 1823. But even today, the Sunnis and Shias are still fighting different campaigns of the same civil war begun almost 1,400 years ago. In the next episode, we hear Ambassador Otto Brueggemann issue additional complaints about his Persian hosts, the Germans do their Christmas devotions in a stable for the camels, and they march deeper into Persia playing music on hawboys, timbrels, cornets, and tabours on the voyages and travels of the ambassadors.